Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. Did you have a band? Good or bad? It's a great band. It's a bad band. It's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what. There's music in the air. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, we're going to take a look at hip-hop lyrics and why they're under the microscope, artistic freedom in danger again. We're going to have a panel discussion that will include public enemies Chuck D. And later on, we'll review the new album from that great Detroit duo, Jack and Meg White, The White Stripes. You are listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. Greg, simmer down, stop bopping along. <laughs> that is Never Again, the first single and the first track on the third album by Kelly Clarkson. Just came out. It's called My December. I got to say, Greg, this is my favorite news story of the year so far. I've been following this with great glee because what we have is a Kelly Clarkson Clive Davis cage match. It's brutal, it's vicious, it's violent. It all starts in late April. A couple months ago, Clive Davis, who is the head of RCA Records, Arista, J Records, one of the most important men in the music business, one of the most long-lived. Guy's 72 years old, been around forever. He signed Janis Joplin. He signed Carlos Santana. He signed Bruce Springsteen. He also gave us Whitney Houston and inflicted Barry Manilow upon the world. There are many bad things about Clive Davis, as well as some good ones. He gets up in front of a giant industry confab, all of his label groups at Sony BMG, and they are anticipating that My December, the third album by Kelly Clarkson, the 25-year-old singer from Texas who was the winner of the first American Idol contest, who has since made two phenomenally successful albums, he gets up and he says, this project is worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And he plays that song, Never Again. And this is to his assembled troops who are going to be going out and selling this record. And he says, does that sound like a number one record to you? Basically, this is a piece of garbage. He's upset with Kelly Clarkson. He wanted, as he did on the first two records, to have her record songs by hired hit songwriters like Max Martin, who crafted her big hit, Since You've Been Gone. And she should just listen to him and sing them. He'll sell the records. You go be the pretty face, dear. You be the voice, the face. We'll sell the records. That's our business. You know, there comes a time in the lifespan of any prefab pop princess where they decide, I'm going to assert myself. I'm going to write my own songs. It's time for me to grow up, mature. This year alone, 2007, we've seen Hilary Duff do it, Joss Stone do it, and Avril Lavigne, right? Now it's Kelly's turn. She wanted to do the songwriting herself. Clive tried to stop her. She wasn't going to take this sitting down. She's from Texas. She started to fire back. Any interviewer who'd listen, she was saying, the label is trying to stop me just for writing realer songs and for trying to rock out. And, uh, (laughs) you know, the next thing you know, there was this thing where she wouldn't sing the single on the American Idol Gives Back special, and she fires her manager, the most uh, powerful management firm in the business, The Firm, which was started by a Chicagoan, Jeff Gwatnitz, and... 
Her summer tour is supposed to be going in arenas, playing 20, 25,000 seat venues. First time I've ever seen this in 20 years of covering the music business. The tour was canceled and a press release was put out nationally saying we canceled the tour because the tickets aren't selling. Mm-hmm. They never say that. It's always like exhaustion or <laughs> or a different marketing plan or I want to concentrate and get the band together. I've never seen a right. tour canceled because the tickets ain't selling. Yeah. Her timing on this is, is extraordinary, Jim. The record industry is in the toilet. For the last six, seven years, it has been declining precipitously. Sales are down 16% this year. There's a lot of pressure on RCA and on Clive Davis to produce hits. They're not producing many hits this year. They are counting on another 10 million selling record. Clive Davis is listening to this record and going, it's dark. It's introspective. It's confessional. It's going to sell maybe a million copies if we're lucky. Uh, (laughs) That's not enough. We need more. We need manufactured pop radio hits. And Kelly Clarkson is saying, I'm not going to give them to you. Right. Now the record's in the stores. It's here. Let's talk about it as art. What has Kelly given us? This is a song called Hole from My December by Kelly Clarkson. from the new record by Kelly Clarkson, My December. You can hear right away, you may be surprised, that's an American Idol singer singing that song? Uh, it doesn't compute. You listen to Kelly Clarkson on the American Idol program in 2002, there's this pop balladeer, this fresh-faced, innocent waitress from Texas. Now she's rocking out. Since You've Been Gone was sort of a tip-off, her big hit in 2004, that she was heading in this direction. She's pushing it even further this time out with David Kahn as the producer. David Kahn, a guy who's uh, perhaps best known for producing big hits for Sugar Ray and Sublime in the 90s. But really, the roots of this record, Jim, I think are in Kahn's early 80s work with some of those new wave bands like yeah. the Bangles and Romeo Void. That's the sound that she's sort of updating on this record. Jabby kind of keyboards, uh, those guitar riffs, uh, the propulsive rhythms. It is, for all intents and purposes, an update of an early 80s new wave record. An interesting change of pace for Kelly Clarkson. The one thing that surprises me, Jim, about this controversy, Clive Davis is acting like this record is the most inaccessible, uh, most horrible record ever made. Uh, No one's going to want to listen to this record. This record has got a ton of hooks on it. Uh, The lyrics may be a little darker and a little more introspective, while they're a lot more Men have treated her wrong, and she's very bitter. It reminds me a lot of Alanis Morissette in the mid-'90s, that you-ought-to-know period where yeah. she was you know, coming off this really tumultuous breakup and writing a lot of vengeful songs about it. It's not like this is unprecedented in, in Top 40 Pop. Alanis Morissette sold 10 million copies of a record of, yeah. of angry songs. Kelly Clarkson's doing the same thing here. I don't see what the big deal is. This is a middle-of-the-road, very well-crafted, new-wavy-slash-pop record. You're using some nice adjectives. You like this thing? I actually like it a lot better than I thought it would. I thought it was going to be crap. I mean, let's face it. 
I think she is a pretty voice in search of a personality. What I hear is a singer actually trying to acquire a personality on this record. I'm I not sure she gets all the way there, look, but it's a much more interesting record than I expected wow, it to be. Wow, you're smoking crack or something because, uh, look, I was with her. What rock fan wouldn't be? The little girl who just wants to rock and tell it like it is, going up against the big corporation that's trying to silence her. I was with her until I read a recent interview she gave to Entertainment Weekly, and she was comparing herself to Bruce Springsteen circa Nebraska. She said, you know, that wasn't the most popular album either. It was one of my favorite records. It was an artist record. And she's basically saying, I made an artist record. Look, this artist record is on the level of a subpar Midwestern bar band, the sort that you would see playing on Tuesday afternoon, not even a prime slot, down at the Minnesota State Fair at the St. Paul Fairgrounds, okay? They're halfway between Pat Benatar and REO Speedwagon. This is dreadful. This is so horrible. And over this horribly mediocre generic music she's whining about what a miserable life she has okay lady you were really lucky you you're not a waitress no more you're a superstar okay and yeah everybody's got pain in their life i'm not unsympathetic but aside from making that horrible movie from justin to kelly you really haven't had any bad breaks lately jim i don't think clive davis was right i wish he had saved us he was like the fireman rushing into a burning building i don't hear a record any different than what avril lavigne is putting out or evanescence is putting out oh no they're they're Uh, both of those or, or Christina, I disagree completely. I think, much, I think and Hillary Duff trumps them all. I think, her new oh, record's really good. No, yes, I, yes, she's right in the pocket with all of those artists. I give her a lot of credit for actually trying something that is somewhat credible. It's not a great record by let, any let, st- stretch of the imagination. Stake your credibility on the line, Cot. Buy it, burn it, trash it. What are you going to tell? I would have said trash it for the first two Kelly Clarkson records. They are totally disposable. But this is worth listening to. It. I would say burn it, trash it, trash it, trash it. Hip-hop has always been under fire because of language and its treatment of race and gender, but the uh, scrutiny seems to have intensified in recent weeks in the wake of the Don Imus controversy. Imus, the uh, radio shock jock, went on the air and denigrated the women of the Rutgers basketball team. Uh, That discussion about whether or not Imus was appropriate in saying those words has spilled over into the hip-hop realm. And now we have black leaders like Oprah Winfrey, Al Sharpton, the NAACP president, Dennis Hayes, questioning the use of certain words in the hip-hop lexicon. And recently we had Russell Simmons, one of the architects of hip-hop, and Ben Chavis, his co-leader in the Hip-Hop Summit Action Network, uh, recently released a statement that said they want to expand the self-censorship in the hip-hop community. Not just seven words you cannot say or broadcast on the radio airwaves, but ten words. Bitch, Ho and the N-word, they're saying hip-hop artists need to censor these words. They need to keep them out of their records and out of their music. We wanted to turn this discussion to those words. Do these words still have a place in hip-hop culture? It's an interesting topic, Greg, and we wanted to go to some of the most astute writers, social critics, and thinkers in the hip-hop world. We're going to hear a little bit later from Mark Anthony Neal and Joan Morgan, but first... From the artist's perspective, as well as the social critic's perspective, the one and only Chuck D., leader of Public Enemy. Chuck, welcome to Sound Opinions. Hey, it's a pleasure, and it's a pleasure to talk to you guys at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've interviewed you any number of times individually, Separately, Chuck. Yeah. And uh, we wanted to devote an episode of the show to 
uh, the inscrutable <laughs> chain of events that has led from this over-the-hill white talk show personality saying a word on the radio that many people find offensive, I think it's universally offensive, to suddenly hip-hop once again being demonized. How did hip-hop get dragged into this? You got any perspective on that? Well, you know, I, all this was taking place while Public Enemy was on our 50, 58th tour. And we <laughs> yeah. were yeah, in the national, so... You know, I was dealing with the country of France and Scandinavia, so you're definitely dealing with different languages as a regular. So to come back in the United States, where, where I guess, you know, I guess we speak sort of like American. <laughs> <laughs> so language is, is, a, is a funny thing in America. And um, the whole Imus explosion, just like was, you know, coming back from international waters, made me say, okay, let's come back with some kind of perspective on how to deal with this. And, um, and then first I see that Russell Simmons and Leo Cohen had a meeting at their apartment. And I'm like saying, there's been grassroots organizations for the longest, like Africa Bambada, the Zulu Nation, has been trying to talk about, you know, navigating certain words through hip-hop on the airways for the longest. So yeah. and I came back in a ball of confusion, as they say, and uh I was like wondering, like, how come they just didn't div- divert that attention to to that grassroots movement instead of trying to take the ball themselves and try to say what should be said and what shouldn't be said. Now you've got Russell Simmons, one of the architects of the art form, proposing a ban on these words. Well, is, the, is, the, it, the, is that something the, that you would you you would advocate as well? Well, you know, it, it, you know, in language, you know, every word is usable. You just can't just get rid of a word. But, I mean, as far as it being used over the airwaves and in the marketplace as being, you know, words that um, that you can build a business around and just make it a, available and accessible easily to to everyone, I mean, you know, some restraints got to be put down on it if, if you're going to deal with language in America. Chuck, we, we, we wanted to turn to you because we wanted an artist's perspective. Um, you know, I'm, I'm raising a 10-year-old daughter. And we deal with this issue of language all the time. And I always tell her, look, there are no bad words, only inopportune times to right. use them. That's, that's an excellent way to put it. And there's going to come a day where I'm going to sit down and play Fear of a Black Planet for her, or it takes a nation of millions to hold us back. And I'm going to say, look, you know, in my lifetime, this is this is as good as, as some art ever got. And I think when you would use the N-word or many other controversial statements in Public Enemy, there was almost always a reason. I, used all, three, I used all three of those words. Right, right. You know, at, at different times. And, but, like, you, you put it very clearly. They were, they were appropriate for what it was. I never begged for certain songs that I actually used any of those words to be actually into the mainstream for airplay. Mm-hmm. You know, if it came down to it, I would quickly try to make something that would actually er- erase those words, not so it would just get airplay, just so I, I wouldn't want you know, somebody to get the wrong idea to think that I was making it accessible for their ears, you know? So, I mean, you have to be sensitive in some situations if you're getting some points across. So, so rockers make this choice all the time. I mean, there are Sex Pistol songs or, or Stooges songs or whatever that, that use uh, some of the seven dirty curse words, and Iggy Pop might say, you know, that song's just not as powerful without the F word. Mm-hmm. And, and he's making a choice. I'm not going to get played on FM radio. That's fine. And that's how you feel about using the N-word or, or bitches and hoes in Public Enemy. You know, I was using the language because I needed the language. And if I don't get played on radio, that's fine. Yeah, you have to be able to say, you know, you can't have both ways. You can't say, well, you know, um, I'm involved in this. And at the same time, I want everybody to embrace it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, something's wrong with that. I mean, you look at Snoop, you know. 
Snoop, he's involved in the porn world, and at the same time, he's you know he's cheer, cheerleading for Sandlot football. I mean, he's in, in kids' you can't, movies. You can't yeah. mix the two. You, you yeah. just can't. You got to just go in that world and be in that world and stick with that zone, and just don't come over into that other zone and say that you're going to make records for all the kids. I mean, it's just, it's difficult. If you were running hip hop for a day, uh, <laughs> Chuck. <laughs> Nah, It'd nah, be in better shape don't. if you could. If, if they put you in charge, uh, which probably wouldn't be a bad idea. What would you do? What would you say to? What would you say to every hip hop artist out there? I mean, I, I think obviously there's been a lot of emphasis placed on one corner of the hip hop world. What can we do to change that? Number one, I would say be true to your heart and your soul. You know, number one, which means that you know don't don't follow. Don't try to abide to trying to satisfy your employer or your contract before you actually try to get across to your fan base. I think the fan base is the employer in the, in the contract at the end of the day, and I don't think it's predicated on how much somebody sells. That's just a, a form of business. But if you remember in the 80s, artists strove to be different as opposed to being similar. The only reason artists ended up trying to be similar is because they knew that trying to be different would not have them with a recording contract for long. And so there's a real golden apple at the end of the, the at the end of the rainbow for somebody who wants to you know kind of like go to the protocol of being that quote unquote um, official rapper of the moment based on commerce. Mm-hmm. Whenever a company thinks that it owns culture, just like it thinks that it owns soul or rock or, or or anything that might be a communicated language through music and other forms, yeah, you got problems. Yeah, and and that's sort of a that's sort of an unspoken part of this too is that you've got black artists, but they're recording for largely uh, you know white executives who are who are putting this music out. So mm-hmm. how, how complicit are they in what Imus is uh, saying? Uh, right, right. That's what I said earlier. I said you know it was like almost like point the finger at the old looking white man for racism and yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's come on now. You know, Imus has been kind of like trying to go and cross. You know, I mean, he got caught for stepping over the line but he's been on the edge for years just trying to once again for the sake of business get ratings mm-hmm. by any means necessary but there's been guys like Jimmy Iovine and Leon and Clive Davis and people like that kind of like just collecting and just not not interfering but you know kind of like not saying anything at the same time as long as it's it's good and we make our stockholders happy yeah. I'm good Chuck D of Public Enemy it's been a pleasure having you on the show Chuck alright I appreciate it thank, thank you thanks, take Chuck. care when we come back to Sound Opinions we'll continue our discussion about the language of hip hop with two of the critics who've been writing about the music from its inception and later on we'll review the brand new album from the White Stripes that's in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media Beat! 
You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We continue our discussion on the controversy over the language of hip-hop lyrics. A word of caution to sensitive listeners. Uh, some nasty words come up in this discussion, and you'll hear some of them in the music as well. But uh, we hope you'll understand that this is key to understanding the very heart of this debate. Let's describe a certain female. A female with a disease of character and attitude. If you will, a snob. However, in the view of N.W.A. A bitch is a bitch. Sore from poor or rich. I talk in the exact same pitch. Now the title bitch don't apply to all women. But all women have a little bitch in them. That's a song called A Bitch is a Bitch by N.W.A. from a classic hip-hop album from 1988, Straight Outta Compton. It is not the first example of misogyny in popular music. In fact, uh, misogyny is a long-standing thread in music that goes back centuries. However, it has come under renewed scrutiny in hip-hop lyrics in particular in recent weeks after the Imus controversy. We're going to have two guests on the show now. Mark Anthony Neal, who is a professor of black popular culture at Duke University and author of a number of books, including uh, New Black Men, Rethinking Black Masculinity. And Joan Morgan, longstanding independent journalist, author, and the former editor of Essence magazine. We asked uh, Mark and Joan here because they are not only hip-hop academics, fine writers and critics, feminists, but fans. Uh, They've been debating the merits and demerits of hip-hop since they were childhood friends growing up in the Bronx, and they recently uh, had a dialogue on these very issues we've been talking about in an essay that was included in Jeff Chang's new book, uh, Total Chaos, The Art and Aesthetics of Hip-Hop. Joan and Mark, welcome to the show. Of course, you two know each other. Hi, Mark. What's up, Joni? (laughs) (laughs) So you both know there's been a lot of criticism of the racism and misogyny that exists in some hip-hop songs. Uh, Joan, let's start with you. How do you reconcile your feminism with your love of this music? You know what's what's, um, interesting is that I was recently listening to just, I guess, what I would have considered mid-school hip-hop but it's probably to many, many, many people now, old-school hip-hop. Just, you know, some of my favorite um, artists. And I remember places where I used to prickle at lyrics that um, seem really innocuous uh, to me now by relative comparison. So I think that what it is is not so much uh, the misogyny in the music. It's the level of misogyny and Mm -hmm. the consistency it seems to be like a mandatory element of any commercial rap track at this mm. point. And that, for me, is where it got extremely problematic because what it causes is a limiting of those other voices that offer some sort of balance in the way that you have in other aspects of popular culture. Well, as anyone knows who's listened to a lot of hip-hop, a wide range of hip-hop, that not all hip-hop records discuss these kind of issues on this kind of misogynist, sexist homophobic level. There's a lot of intelligence, a lot of discourse out there, but that stuff is never heard. I mean, that, that's part of what's frustrating, right? I mean, because we, ha- we weren't parsing out who was real and who wasn't 20 years ago. I mean, you could have Chuck and you could have Ice Cube and you could have Special Ed, and if it was good, it was good. And, it, and it do- that doesn't mean that there weren't conversations about, you know, the East Coast is better than the West Coast and what's the South and I mean, those discussions obviously happen, but you now, I mean, it's this real serious discussion that's really limiting the range of what people can do and what they can represent. 
you know, when you know, when Joan suggested there's a kind of requirement out there for certain kinds of things, I mean, you're almost imagining someone standing there going, you know, this is commercial hip hop. We need more bitches and hoes. You know, we need more of this <laughs> stuff in the record if you're going to sell the record. And I think that's because, on the one hand, the marketplace has such a truncated view of what this is and, and what can be represented and what they can sell. And the downside are, are folks who are really doing some amazing stuff that's really incredible and creative. You know, they don't get a hearing in the marketplace, and folks don't know they even exist in some cases. Mm-hmm. Well, sure. even more disturbing is that I, I find, like, with so many of, our, of the younger hip-hop consumers, they don't even have a sense of history in the way that right. we had right. a sense of musical history. And I'm not even talking about, like, hip-hop. I'm talking about the music that preceded it, um, that we grew up on. I'll give you an example. A friend of mine who is in her 20s here and an, an avid hip-hop fan was watching music videos with some friends, and a De La Soul video came on. And they were just like, who is this? What, what do you have us watching? <laughs> yeah. Which is, you know, they don't, they, they don't, you know, any music that I consider myself a fan of, I sort of have at least a history of it in terms of what preceded it and what I liked and what I didn't like. But this generation is very, like, of that particular moment. So it's almost as if they don't even have a point of reference to compare it right. to. So contemporary hip hop becomes for them, you know, the most heinous example of this stuff, you know, that's that in their mind is unprecedented. And you know, I'm, I talked to my class a few days ago and put on some Clarence Carter, you know, I'd be stroking. You know, it's like, you know, this is a sixty year old, sixty five year old man recording in nineteen ninety. When I start making love, I don't just make love, I be stroking. That's what I be doing. I be stroking. I stroke it to the east and I stroke it to the west. I stroke it to the woman that I love the best. I be stroking. So when they don't have that kind of frame of reference, you know, there's a kind of immediacy in terms of the way that they react to hip hop that doesn't take into account that, they, you know, this is just a long trajectory of these of these moments. I mean, hip hop, contemporary hip hop is unique at this moment because so much is, it's it's so palpable at this moment and so visible in the way that Clarence Carter could never be visible. And that's not necessarily about hip hop in and of itself, as it is the, the kind of technological moment that we're in when things are just, you know, out there so much more so than it w- was in previous generations. You know, there's a sense, though, too, uh, the biggest selling hip hop record of 2006, I believe, was the T.I. record. And, and that, and I say only, uh, you know, qualified, but 1.5 million copies isn't the shabby sales. But that's not mega sales. And, and, and there's a sense that hip hop, in some ways, is sort of peaking a little commercially and that people are looking for something new. Maybe they are, maybe the marketplace is getting a little tired of the same old, same old over again. Whereas you had that period of incredible innovation from the mid, mid-80s into the early 90s, and then that just sort of faded away. And maybe we're at a point now where, where there is an opportunity for some fresh stuff to come in in the marketplace. So Russell Simmons, saying what he did about let's censor ourselves, let's take the N-word out of hip-hop records, and, there was, you know, and the B-word, you know, um, what do you make of that um, in light of what's going on out there right now? It seems like the marketplace is already starting to speak. Yeah, we're getting a little tired of this. I mean, is that your reading on this at all? Well, I mean, I have to say, I was extremely disappointed after that great, you know, record industry powerhouse summit with uh, Ben Chavis and, and Russell Simmons, because I felt like 
at this critical sort of zeitgeist moment um, that all of these people got together and people who are most immediately impact the industry and the consumer and the listener. And basically what they really came back with, we need to do a better job of what we're already supposed to be doing. I was like, doesn't anyone see that the emperor's not wearing any clothes here? Mm, It's really just, I I don't know, anemic at best and disingenuous at worst, which is not to say that I think, uh, I'm not putting any qualification on what I I think the sincerity is of what Russell went in there with, (laughs) but I do pay very strong attention to the minimum amount he was able to bring back. Mark's laughing because Mark doubts that Russell was sincere. I, I actually doubt that Joan believes in you. <laughs> I'm just being diplomatic. Well, when we talked to Chuck D, I mean, Chuck imagined somebody like Jimmy Iovine at the head of Interscope Records sitting there and literally saying, I need 20 more bitches and 40 more hoes on this record. It's not ready yeah, to re- yeah. release yet. Yeah. You know, I mean, in a way, it's a compliment to the music and the culture that it's still, you know, all I have to do is say hip hop and, and the alarm bells go off. I'm glad it's still dangerous. But I'm troubled that kids think it's okay to denigrate women, to be afraid of of gay people, and to use the N-word so cavalierly without any sense of history about all of the the, the millions of people who've suffered because of that word. I I do have to say something, though. I watched Uptown Saturday Night with my (laughs) 7-year-old last weekend, and Bill Cosby uses the N-word quite cavalierly throughout the entire film. But I think that it's very easy to get, um, you know, because hip-hop is so immediate and we're in an age of technology where it's easy to be so inundated. There has always been, even with Bill Cosby, who, who has slammed our youth as just being lazy and ungrateful and giving up the struggle, even among people like who, who consider himself super conscious, there's always been this tension around the n-word the problem is that when you have this mass marketing of um, culture of things that used to be kind of inside cultural codes and that really is the problem i mean you hear the word the b-word quite frequently on on television in things that are completely not hip-hop related so what i guess i'm saying is that it can't just be hip hop that gets that kind of sanitizing, mm-hmm. and not the and not pop culture in general, because it's not the only place where those words are permissible. But Joan, I want to make it uh, ask you point blank. I mean, do you feel that Simmons was correct when he said, or do you agree with what he's saying in in that he wants to uh, self censorship of these words on on hip hop records? Uh, honestly, I don't really think that asking the artists themselves to use the word less is going to be particularly effective just because I think that you can say some really sexist and certainly homophobic things without ever using those words. Well, and I think what Simmons was saying is he'd like to see radio edits, hear radio edits, that specifically take those words out of the song. What Chuck D was saying is you can have a great, powerful piece of art that uses those words, that needs to use those words, and the artist should just realize that shouldn't get played on the radio. But the way I look at it is, wow, that's exactly the sort of song I want people to hear on the radio. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I mean, that's the frustration of it. I mean, every, every bitch and every nigger and every hoe isn't constructed the same way. And when you think about the complexity that people employ some of these phrases, to say that they can't use the word denies them the opportunity to be as complex as possible in terms of metaphors and a range of other things that they do with what we think of as pejorative language. Nigger first was used back in the deep south, falling out between the dome of the white man's mouth. It means that we will never grow. You know the word dummy. 
Upper niggas in the community think it's crummy, but I don't. Neither does the youth, cause we embrace adversity. It goes right with the race. And being that we use it as a term of endearment, niggas start to bug to the domas where the fear went. Now the little shorty say it all of the time. And a whole bunch of niggas throw the word in a rhyme. Yo, I start to flinch as I try not to say it, but my lips is like the oop as I start to spray it. My lips is like the oop as I start to spray it. My lips is like the oop as I start to spray it. I'm great against, you know, whether it's Russell Simmons or a black middle class old guard, you know, like Jesse Jackson talking, you know, six months ago about banning the word nigger. You know, I, I just grade against those responses because ultimately for me, looking at it from an artistic standpoint, I'm just going to grade against someone telling me that I can't use that word. You know, what's interesting, too, is I think there's a context for this stuff that's kind of been removed. Like one of the things that I think was exciting about hip hop, even when it started using this language, and we had that hardcore stuff coming out of out of California, was the documentary aspect of it. And I think Joan, you wrestled with that notion in uh, in your review of America's Most Wanted in the Village Voice, one of the best pieces of hip hop journalism I think I've ever read. And it was just one of those issues where you were openly struggling with the language that was being used on this record. At the same time, it was incredibly compelling, and there was an an element of deep truth to what Ice Cube was talking about in that record in terms of the attitudes within the community that he was talking about. So I'm wondering if we're seeing that kind of context being brought to the discussion today, or is, has that been lost, and is that the reason that we're so concerned about this today, you know, 17 years after America's Most Wanted? Well, see, I think that it was really easy to struggle with something like America's Most Wanted and the lyrical content versus the artistic brilliance, because it was brilliant. I mean, there was a level of just creative brilliance to it that that makes you wrestle with with the ugliness. I think that that's the nature of of art is that there historically just many many things you're willing to kind of stomach or even wrestle with in homage and with respect to creative genius. I mean, quite frankly, and this is just me speaking in terms of aesthetics. I just don't see that level. I see that level of brilliance in very 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 few commercial rap artists these days. Mm -hmm. Because I think that as we've seen the industry move to this kind of uh, lowest base common denominator, that a lot of the artistic, uh, uh, a lot of the artistic integrity and ability has been lost. Some of the best artists that I've heard in the last six months have been on MySpace, and they're not signed. Mm Mm-hmm. Which kind of puts it, Joan, doesn't it, in the in the realm of indie rock, where you know you have you know a circle like the mid '80s. We have the Poisons and the Rats at the top of the charts, and then you have the Minutemen and Husker Du and the Replacements and these bands making this incredible groundbreaking music. Today, the great hip hop is happening underground, and then you know you got Skeet Skeet and the stuff on the mainstream. But I always want to you know be careful about dismissing the mainstream. Just outright, because uh, because I, I, I think there are moments, right? And and the question is, how do we get 
an affirmation of the moments within the mainstream, you know, that, that really forced the artists to think, well, you know, maybe I need to look in this direction more often. I mean, I mean, Kanye is a great example of that. Kanye gets away ultimately with the fact that the, the beats are just so great that regardless of what he's saying or how he's saying it, you know, you're going to want to listen. But, you know, how do we affirm those kind of moments? I mean, and Jay-Z is probably a bad example here because in many ways he's kind of transcended hip-hop. But when you listen to a track like Minority Report, you know, which didn't get any radio play, in which not only is he critical of where hip-hop is on the issue of social justice, he's critical of his own stance, you know, you know, vis-a-vis Hurricane Katrina. People was poor before the hurricane came For the down poor is like the Mary J saying Every day it rains, so every day the pain But ignored and matured, the rinse was the blame But life is a chain, cause and effect Niggas off the chain, cause they infected It's a dirty game, so whatever is effective and this is a song that gets no hearing on the radio. There are very few critics talked about. So there's nothing there with him being as political as he's ever been. There's nothing there to affirm for him or any other folks looking at him as an example that it's actually worthwhile to do this kind of music that challenges our perceptions of, of what can be, you know, what con- quote-unquote conscious rap can do. You know, the folks who are critical of hip-hop for its content are, are really not very good on aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a reason why 50 Cent sold 10 million copies. And once you listen to In the Club, you understand. Yeah. Um, and I think those kind of folks never take into account those level of aesthetics. Even those folks who talk about, well, hip-hop today isn't what it was 20 years ago. And, and you may can say that on an artistic level, or at least around lyrics, but in terms of production, uh, I mean, what we're hearing on the production side is really unprecedented at this point in time. So what we're seeing here is a there's still a tremendous need for a dialogue in these issues, but the the outlets for that dialogue are drying up. Right. And Mark, let's go to you. I asked uh, Chuck D the same question. Uh, let's put you in charge for a day of the whole thing, uh, hip-hop industry. Uh, whatever, whatever needs to be done, you snap your fingers, it's going to get done. What, what, can, what should be done? Uh, you know, Joan criticized Simmons for coming out of that meeting a few weeks ago and, and not really have anything constructive to add to the dialogue at this point. What would you say? What, what, what needs to be done at this point? I mean, I don't think you can talk about hip-hop without talking about the radio industry and the recording industry in general. You have artists, you know, who have very little control over their product. You know, go in the studio, record 25 tracks, somebody else chooses which 15 are going to end up on the album. Right? And they don't have much of control over what the lead single is or who's going to do the video. I mean, all those kinds of things that the average person in the public doesn't see. The kind of investment that we've seen, you know, in hip hop over the last decade or so. When you mentioned, you know, that the numbers are coming down, I mean, I'm glad that the sales are coming down because now that the investment financially won't be the same, folks are back off of artists and let them do just what they want to do. And for the artists, you know, for me, it's it's not that dichotomy between conscious hip hop and and quote unquote gangster rap. Can you just give me a wide human experience in your music? Right. Joan, it's only fair. What If you ran the world, we're talking to Joan Morgan and Mark Anthony Neal, hip-hop authors, fans, scholars. Joan, if you ran the world, how would you deal with this disparity in, in, in hip-hop between songs that are 
talking about real women and, and the pros and the cons, and then the million songs talking about the bitches and hoes. Uh, well, I would probably break up the conglomerate of, you know, what do we have now, like five labels Four making five, all of the yeah. decisions about all the music? It's down to three, technically, <laughs> you know, yeah. Down to three. And next week it'll be one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and I think that we got better artists when the standard was, wow, 500,000 units, that's that's pretty good, you know, as opposed to if you don't do a million your first time out, we can't invest in you. And I would hire much better A&R, because mm. I don't think that you see the kind of A&R artists that you saw even 10, 15 years ago that really got excited about signing new talent and cultivating it. Wow. I'm putting you guys in charge right now. Yeah. <laughs> I like what I'm hearing. Oh, why don't you guys just do sound opinions? This <laughs> yeah. Thank you both so much. We've been talking to Mark Anthony Neal, professor of black popular culture at Duke University, and Joan Morgan, author and critic, former editor of Essence Magazine. Thanks again, guys, for coming on the show. Well, thank You're you for welcome. having us. Thank you for having us. Coming up on Sound Opinions, Jim and I are going to take a look at the new album from the White Stripes. That's when we return on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. What you're listening to is Jack and Meg White of the White Stripes impersonating a couple of junk collectors on the song Rag and Bone from their new album, Icky Thump. What a name for an album. Sixth album in ten years. A very apropos song, as we're going to discuss later on, Jim, but uh, essentially a, a band that has made a career out of taking the discards of forgotten music, music that is not often played in American rock clubs these days, traditional blues, folk, gospel, country, and updating it for an indie rock audience and turning it into one of the most improbable success stories of the last decade. Here's a band that is selling millions of records, essentially updating 
these uh, discarded art forms and doing it with a two-piece lineup throughout their career. Basically, Meg on drums, Jack on guitar, former husband and wife still together, making great music. This is their sixth record. It comes after a couple of departures for the band. Their fifth record, which came out in 2005, Get Behind Me, Satan, marked sort of a sonic departure for the band. Where, keyboards. Uh, keyboards Woo! and marimba. <laughs> Very little guitar on that record. And then Jack White followed it up with a side project called the Tours, which was essentially a traditional two guitars, bass, drums band, where he co-wrote a lot of the songs with the other singer in the band, Brendan Benson. Now he is back to the White Stripes, and in a lot of ways, returning them to the sound upon which the band was founded. Before we're going to review the record, let's hear a track from it. It is uh, Jack White in country rock mode with a little bit of soul Hammond organ on it. It's a track called You Don't Know What Love Is, You Just Do As You're Told from the White Stripes on Sound Opinions. In some respects, I suspect you've got a respectable side. When pushed and pulled and pressured, you sell on and hide. But it's for someone else's benefit, not for what you want to do. Until I realize that you've realized I'm gonna say these words to you Yeah, you don't know what love is You do as you're told Just as a child of ten might act But you're far too old You're not hopeless or helpless And I hate to sound cold But you don't know what love is you just do as you're
I love that. If Led Zeppelin had been an indie rock band, I think it would have sounded like that. You don't know what love is. You just do as you're told by the White Stripes from their sixth album, Icky Thump. This is an unqualified masterpiece, Greg. This is may well be, in fact. Masterpiece, wow. It, it is. It, it may well be the White Stripes' uh, finest album to date. The key, the reason I wanted to play Rag and Bone coming in is, you know, Jack White is an incredibly smart guy. I interviewed him years ago before they really broke big. And I was talking to him on the phone. I said, what are you doing, Jack? I'm sitting here watching the Grapes of Wrath on TV. <laughs> you know, what a perfect thing to say. He... Doesn't say much, doesn't talk a lot, is kind of mysterious, fosters this image, but is a wonderful student of rock history, American cultural history. When he and Meg are the junk collectors visiting this mansion and looking at all the junk, the mansion on the hill, right? right. You know, he's the living personification of what rock critic Grill Marcus called the old weird America. And he loves to rummage through the dustbin. And, you know, he, he says to Meg, you know, you don't want these things. That are, you know, Meg and I can use them. We can do something with them. They are taking as you said, music that, that have been forgotten for most of, of rock today, except for the alternative country kind of spectrum. They're taking a weird kind of mariachi song and turning it into a, a feminist screed with conquest. They are taking the uh, roots of country music, real country music, in Celtic balladry, you know, because it was the Scots and the Irish that crossed the ocean with these songs, and they changed in, in the journey with a song like Prickly Thorn But Sweetly Worn. They're doing everything. They're hardly purists, but they are breathing more life and more energy and more excitement with more pop smarts into real interesting American roots music than, you know, any band in the last 20 years. I, I got to say, buy it, burn it, trash it. This is an, an absolute buy it album. Well, it's a terrific record. I've liked this band for a long time, uh, more as a live entity than as a recording project, mainly because uh, I think uh, Jack White, for all his smarts, and for all his astuteness in, in rubbaging through music's past and coming up with great covers, it kind of exposes the fact that his own songwriting isn't quite as good as some of those covers that they've come up with. Uh, uh, he's given us a half dozen of the best hits of Without the last a doubt. Years. I mean, there's been some great singles, but I'm thinking in terms of full albums of Jack White originals, I don't think he's ever quite hit the bell for me. I think this record comes closest of all, however. As you mentioned, that song, Conquest, is outrageous. He takes a <laughs> Patty Page. I mean, Patty Page, the woman who sang, how much is that doggy yeah. in the window yeah. in the 50s? Conquest. He was out to make a conquest. Didn't care what time was done just as long as he won the prize. You know, he takes a B-side from her and turns it into this just rip-roaring blowout between this anonymous mariachi trumpeter that he ran into at a restaurant and his guitar yeah. and and just it's, it's outrageously good but i have to say several tracks on this record stand with with that song in terms of the execution. Oh, yeah, I forgot to mention the title track, where he is talking about, you know, this is a nation of immigrants, of misfits, of people who crept in under the barbed wire, and Americans, what's the matter with you? you got nothing to do? Why don't you kick yourself out? You're right. an immigrant, too. 
being political in very real and very funny terms. Absolutely. You don't know what love is. You just do as you're told. That's a wonderful, that's a, that is a classic sounding song. I could mm-hmm. see this song being played 20 years from now and people are going to be loving it. There's another gem on here where he sort of, uh, he, he pays tribute to Scottish ballads of the 19th century. Prickly Thorn, but sweetly worn. I think that that is a kind of song that you could have heard on like Led Zeppelin three. You know, it just woke mm-hmm. up a whole generation to a different style of music, a style of music that you know they'd completely forgotten about. Jack White completely makes it contemporary for his audience. Meg White, gotta say, you know, a lot of attention is paid to Jack's songwriting. She is a terrific drummer. She does, she gives this band exactly what it needs. There are some white noise rocking blowouts on this record that equal anything they've done and in fact exceed it. I think this record's been better recorded. You compare this to like Die Still or some of their earlier records, those sound like lo-fi bedroom recordings. This sounds Mm -hmm. like a full-blown rock record that you can play at any volume and it's going to sound great. So, you know, Jim, I I don't know if it's a masterpiece, but I would have to say it's the White Stripes' best album and it's definitely a buy it for me. Greg, we just did our Best of 2007 So Far show, and it sounds like we have another contender for the second half of the year uh, with this White Stripes record. What do we got next week? Next week we have a great band, a band that we've talked about a number of times on this show, Peter, Bjorn, and John. In honor of Peter, Bjorn, and John's appearance uh, and that great whistling song, Young Folks, we're also going to talk about some of the great whistling parts in rock songs over the years. Excellent stuff. Got some thank yous to say. As always, Sound Opinions is produced by our exquisite team of Todd Bachman, Matt Spiegel, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn, plus Chuck the Intern, who wore a tie to work today, and Tori Malatia, a man who rarely wears ties, but he has very nice sneakers. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. I'm in the phone booth. messages. Hey Jim and Greg, this is Carrie calling from Chicago. Just wanted to call in and comment about last week's Best of 2007 so far and agree with Greg's choice of Mavis Staples will never turn back. Thought it was a solid, awesome album and not so many solid, awesome albums this year so far. Maybe the Maybe the tide will be turning and things will get better, but might as well go with something that you know is going to be relevant and sound beautiful, and I thought she did. I don't even think she needed the production help of Rye Cooter, who brings out the best in almost anyone. I think she could have handled it all on her own, so thought that was an awesome choice by Greg. Thanks a lot, guys. Good show. Now this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hi, this is Bill from Indianapolis, and my vote for Album of the Year is Air Pocket Symphony. 
I think there's no better album to sit in your couch and blast and sink into your couch slowly as the music just kind of fills the room. So that is my pick for album of the year. Thank you. My name is Michael, I'm from Chicago, and I'm calling because my favorite album of 2007 so far is Dan Deacon's Spider-Man of the Rings. It is so bizarre, and I've never heard anything like it before, and it just really sucks you right in with its strange, mysterious, wacky brilliance. Especially like the track Wham City. And uh, yeah, you guys should check it out. Thanks. Hey guys, this is Mike from San Francisco. And I had to say, I just, just listened to the podcast. And oh my goodness, you know, I've been so excited. There was a new Burning Brides album this week, and there was. Uh, New Queens of the Stone Age last week and uh, and then you mentioned Glenn Mercer on the radio and I forget about everything else um, I couldn't believe uh, our luck that there is new feelies or something like new feelies Yesterday I saw it coming Should have gone away running Had a chance Didn't take it Another time Back in high school in the 80s, I used to play um, The Good Earth for my friends, you know, all my punk rock and Black Sabbath buddies, I'd play The Good Earth, and they'd be like, huh? And I just couldn't explain to anyone why I loved this extremely simple, extremely beautiful music. Uh, I didn't even understand it, and uh, anyway, thanks so much for letting me know this Glenn Mercer. I'm going to the store now. Take care, guys. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.